Open your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 4. We'll actually look at that text this evening. And as I mentioned, it comes out of Isaiah chapter 61. We're going to look at a New Testament reference to that. And uh, read together the Lord and His his ministry, the Lord Jesus and His ministry. Luke chapter 4. Starting in verse 16. Let's read the word of the Lord together. It says, As he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And as he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him, and he began to say to them, verse 21, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, would you take the reading of your word and bless it to us tonight as we consider it, as we consider your ways and your ministry and your work in us and your work in the world and your work uh, calling the church into being and calling us to your kingdom to be uh, taken from the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of this world, and to be transferred into the kingdom of your son. Father, we pray that you would do great things through us, through the fellowship that is Lincoln Avenue Baptist Church. Father, through your church, strengthen your church. Give, give her the sense of who you are and what it means to be yours and what it means to do your work in the world. We say this in Christ's name and all God's people said amen. I was going to introduce this and I'll probably come to this in a moment. But uh, before, I, before I talk about this text in particular, I want to talk about um, what it, what it, what, what's going on in churches and there, there's a real uh, drought right now in churches, and that drought isn't a lack of rain. It's a lack of, I would say, spiritual power. There's a lot of churches in northwest Oklahoma and in Oklahoma uh, broadly that, that aren't really doing well. They're, they're not seeing people baptized. They're not ministering well in the name of the Lord Jesus. They're not loving well, and it's showing those churches are consistently declining in numbers. And that, that sounds like a kind of a negative way to start a sermon off. I, I don't mean to be negative, but I do work with a lot of churches, both in our association and outside of that. And to fail to understand that uh, would be a grave error. We, we have to pay attention to what's going on around us and what's going on in the culture. And, and specifically what's going on in the collective culture of Southern Baptist churches and gospel preaching churches at large, we don't want to just restrict this to Southern Baptist churches. There's there's just a drought of spiritual power and zeal for the Word of the Lord and zeal for God and 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 desire for Christ and His things. Uh, sometimes we'll look at that and say, "Man, if we just had it the way it used to be, it'd be a lot better." Here, the truth of the matter is, it it's been this way for a long time. The way it used to be wasn't nearly as good as we probably remember it. And the truth is we've been moving in a direction where people aren't as interested in the things of the gospel for a long time. This isn't a, like last year this started. This has, been a, this has been a two or three decade trend among churches. And 
the reason I bring that up to you is there's, there, there's often the, the case, it is often the case in, in the life of the church that we should speak very specifically to congregations. And I think Lincoln Avenue is a church that we should speak specifically to. We shouldn't talk in the abstract only and kind of talk about generally, you know, you get out of the sermon what you need to get out of it. Sometimes we should speak very specifically to churches. And I would say Lincoln Avenue Baptist Church is in need of a warning. And the warning would be this. Don't be proud. Don't be proud. Things are going well and God is blessing. But if you ever forget the things that got you where you are in ministry, what is true for other churches that are in rapid decline will one day be true for you. You know, the church that ran 2,000 in the mid-80s and is running uh, 250 or 300 today in Oklahoma City, I won't name the church, that a good friend of mine just took over the pastorate of, and he's doing all that he can to try to rebuild and reignite the passion for Christ and ministry in that church. That church never thought, man, we're going to run this thing in the ground as hard as we can. <laughs> you know, no, one, no one runs a business that way. No one thinks, man, let's do everything we can to wreck our family. Let's, let's, let's year after year after year uh, not do well in our business. Let's, let's really not do the things we need to do in our church to mess our fellowship up. No one does that. It's small, minor things that end up getting you over the long run, aren't they? You know, rarely does, does, does a family go bankrupt in a year. You know? I, we, we could, if we want to use, you know, a political uh, example, and we don't want to talk about necessarily politics from the pulpit, but we, we didn't get in a bad situation in our government, you know, five minutes ago. You know, we didn't get in this, you know, massive debt last week. It's been a long, gradual process of not doing the things that needed to be done by lots of people. Lots of people are to blame. And, and we, we could say the same thing in the church, that when we're not careful about who we are, what we've been called to do, what God is at work in us doing, gradually, if we're not careful, we'll lose that thing that enables God to take a fellowship of people and do great and mighty things with them. That's what's going on by way of introduction in Luke 4. You've got the people of Israel having... Um, having failed to be all that God wanted them to be, failed to be the light of the world that God had called them to be. And her Messiah comes, her great king comes to redeem and deliver her from the bondage that she's in. If you recall in the Old Testament, bondage uh, and, and redemption and, and exile and redemption were common themes. You remember that? So you've got, you've got um, Abraham and, and his people, and eventually they go down to Egypt, and then a Pharaoh comes up who... Uh, who doesn't know Israel, doesn't know God's purposes there, and they become a, a slave people. And so we then have this 400-year period, and, and exile and redemption and freedom become this, this reoccurring theme. And when the people of God would fall into sin, they would go into, you know, we have that Babylonian exile and then a return. And we have, we have these various times where the people of God are oppressed by their sin and oppressed by their captors, and then God delivers them. And when we get to the New Testament, we have the people of God inhabiting Jerusalem, filling the territories of Israel, but they're not under their own control. They're not under their own government. They're under a kind of a puppet government, and Rome is really in charge. And, and the word of the day is that Caesar is Lord. Now, the Romans were smart governors. They recognized that the fastest way to have uh, confusion and conflict and uprisings in your kingdom is to deny people their private religion. 
So it was common that they would allow people to worship however they wanted to, where they lived, keep their customs, but they'd have to pay their taxes and they would be under the authority of Rome. And so that's the day when, and, and instead of embodying that and filling that out with the, with the good news of grace and mercy and love for God and, and being this great light, Israel had become very inward. They had become a bickering people who bickered among themselves as to who was most holy and who was most right and who most followed the law and who most worshipped in the temple. And you had the various parties, the Sadducees, you had the Pharisees, you had the Zealots. You know, you had the, the Essenes who went out to the desert. I mean, you have, you have these various factions and they're, and they're saying, well, we're this and we're that and you're this and you're that. And, and Jesus comes into this environment to begin his ministry. And he, and he goes back to Nazareth where he, where he had grown up and he enters into the synagogue as he worshiped regularly. We know he was a, a person who was steeped in the word of God as a young man. Not, not just the son of God who is fully God, but this is the son of God who is fully man who grew up learning the scriptures just like every other young man grew up learning the scriptures. And he goes into the synagogue and it was time for him to begin his prophetic kingdom pronouncing, slave freeing, heart saving ministry. I mean, he's going to come in and he's going to do this mighty work. And no one expects it. No one sees it coming except John. John sees it coming. He knows it's coming. And he's, he's already begun to do his work of prophecy. Jesus has responded to that work of prophecy. John has pronounced on him, this is who you are. You are God's son. And Jesus receives that. And he receives the blessing from God in heaven. And he receives that baptism that identifies him with the new way of knowing God. This way of return and redemption and freedom for God's people. And then he stands up and he reads this text, the text I just sang. And he he reads that. And he says, this scripture is fulfilled today in your hearing. And he says that to them. What are the marks? This is one of my very favorite texts. I preach on this text a lot. What are the marks that we see in this text that are applicable for us? Well, before before we answer that, let me ask you a question. When you meet someone new, what are, what, are the, what are the things that you engage them with by way of questions? Well, what do you do? Well, where are you from? That's one, isn't it? That, when we were in Red River this last week, um, we, we took a few days and got up in the mountains out of the heat and were you know, camping by the river and having a good time. We'd go into town and we'd meet someone and maybe we'd see someone with an Oklahoma shirt on. Well, hey, where are you from? We're from Oklahoma too. Where are you from? And we'd strike up a conversation. And so we'd ask them questions like, where are you from and where are you staying? You know, where, where are you at up here? What have you been doing? And, you know, we'd find a little bit about what the, their activities were. And if the conversation was going well and we had time and they weren't rushing off and we weren't rushing off, we might ask them a little bit about their family or their hometown. Inevitably, though, especially among men, we'll ask this question. You know what it is? It's, well, what do you do? Isn't that, isn't that right? Men always tend tend to ask that question because work, and it's not that it's only for men, but for most men, work or or vocation or hobby, even for a retired guy, maybe who doesn't work, you know, a 40, 50, 60 hour week, a week any longer, he's still very much identified by what he spent his life doing, what, what the work of his hands, the work of his mind, what he gave countless hours of his life to do. He's identified by that. And so that becomes a, a part of our conversation. And so we'll say, well, what do you do? And someone will say, well, you know, I, I, I do this or I do that. I, I noticed it was ironic. We just happened to be standing right beside someone from the Woodward Fire Department when we were in Red River. And so, you know, he's there. I knew what he did. Uh, I, I'm glad those guys do what they do. And 
Uh, so, so, you know, that becomes a, a big part of, 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 of who we are, a big part of our identity. Interestingly, that's exactly what Jesus was telling everybody here, isn't it? And did, you, did you see that? He stands up and he says, this is who I am. I'm this person. Go back with me to Isaiah chapter 61, if you will. So here's Isaiah giving God's people his word. He, he's, he's presenting the word of the Lord to the people. And, and he's talking to them about this great freedom that comes for God's people when they're walking with God. When God brings his special saving grace and, and, he, and he banishes evil and he, and he restores the goodness of, of, of his presence with his people. And, and here's what it says. It says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of, pr- of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of faint spirit, that they would be called the oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he should be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. What a great promise that God gives his people. He says, this is your future. And I'm going to do this. And Isaiah, he, he speaks those words. He writes those words. He gives those words to the people of God. And they begin to take heart and hope in those words. And they say, this is our future. A day will come when God will make these things true. God will do this. God will be faithful. He will make this happen. The Spirit of God will come and do this. He'll bring this about. And so Jesus stands up in the midst of God's people. And he takes the scroll of Isaiah and he opens it to this passage. And he stands up and he reads that to them. And he says, and this has been fulfilled in your hearing. And, and the text goes on to say that they all spoke well of him for that. If you read the rest of Luke 4, which we won't, it doesn't end well. Luke 4 has a, has a really negative ending. The people of God uh, aren't really excited about the rest of Jesus' message to them because he, he rebukes them. And he says, don't just assume that this is for you when you refuse to live by these truths. When you refuse to embody for yourself these things. And that's really what I want to talk to you about. So, so when I ask a guy in Red River or down at the coffee shop or over at Walmart, what do you do? He'll tell me and I'll tell him what I do. If we were to ask Jesus, Jesus, what do you do? He would, he would probably tell us something like Luke chapter 4 and say, this is what I do. I do this. Or he might say something like, I've come to seek and save that which is lost. I've been sent by my father to do what I saw my father doing He might say, I've come to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. I've come to bring good news to those who are desperate for some good news. I've come to bring heat. I mean, he would say a whole range of things that all are intertwined together that essentially teach us this idea. That the days of captivity and mourning and hardship, those days are passing. And the days of freedom and joy and gladness, those days are here. Because of who Christ is. And so that's who Jesus is. That's who he is. And so as we think about, okay, so, so what does this mean for us? Well, let, let's take Luke 4 and let's just look at a couple of things that I think are important for us. One, uh, when we look at Luke chapter 4, there is a keen sense 
that how you understand and relate to the poor is really important to Jesus and his ministry. How you relate to those who in this life, Scripture's full of this, who in this life do not have the best end of the deal. That's just, a, that's just a true thing throughout all of Scripture. Jesus never told stories about how great it was to be wealthy, did he? Never. Never did he tell stories about how great it was to be wealthy, blessed with a good insurance policy in case something happens to you so your family's cared for. He never told stories about that. But instead, he always told stories about how those who were poor and oppressed and who had been on the bad end of deals numerous times, how God took up their cause and how God cared for them and blessed them. Jesus was always telling stories not about how the best person in a family would rise to prominence, but how the lesser person in the family could be used by God to show that only God could do that. It was often the case that God would turn upside down family lineage and he wouldn't take the firstborn, somebody would take the second or the last. It's not, it's not unlike God to take the most violent offender in the first century against the church, call that man to be an apostle, name him the apostle at the last minute, and then let that apostle, who was the most unlikely, become the, the apostle who does the greatest things. In the, isn't that how God works? He's always taking up the cause of the, the needy. He's always turning the vilest person. He takes the son that no one even thinks to call from the fields and makes him the king. I mean, that's how God works all the time. He's always moving in the most unlikely ways. And it is a true thing throughout Scripture that God identifies himself with the poor. And Jesus says that. He says, I've come to proclaim good news to the poor. Those who don't have all that they might think they need. I've come to proclaim good news to them. What do you think that good news is? Is it, hey, good news, you're going to get another dose of poor. No, I don't think that's what the good news... I mean, that's not the good news that, that the poor would want to hear, is it? No, it's the good news that comes that says, hey, there's someone that cares about your situation and there's someone who has the ability to do something about it. That person is here. You know, it goes on to talk about the liberty to the captives. Now, this doesn't necessarily... We have to be careful how we interpret this, but the idea of being in captivity, that, that very much has to do with those who, because of their faith have been, they're in this exile position. And now liberty is going to be given to them so that they can return home to be in their homeland, worshiping freely at the temple of God, in the synagogue, with God's people. Jesus has come to proclaim liberty to them. It's The picture you want to draw down there is what was it that Moses proclaimed to the children of Israel when they were in Egypt? What did he proclaim? Liberty. No longer will you bear the whip of the Egyptian on your back and their day work for you, for your work. No, you're going to have liberty and you're going to come out from them. You're no longer a captive people, but you are a free people before God. So, so that's the thing. We, we, we want to see that, that there's this sense that what is physically wrong with people, th- those that have, have lost uh, physical capacity or maybe were born in a situation where their, their hands don't work right or their ears don't work right or their tongue doesn't work right or their eyes don't work right. Whatever it is, whatever that, whatever that, that, that situation they're born into, that's going to be made right. God's going to fix that. He says, and that day is here now. He says, I've come to, 
to set at liberty those who have been oppressed. This is a little different picture, though, than those who are in captivity. This is the idea that there's a power that is, that is inappropriately lording over those who are under authority. Would you agree that we're all under authority? Is that, is that true? I'll tell you guys a story. I wasn't going to tell this story, but my kids probably will, so I should just tell it first so it's right. Because if I don't tell it first, John David will probably tell it or someone will and they'll get it wrong. And it'll be much worse the way they tell it than the way I tell it. As we're driving up to to Red River, my wife was driving really fast the whole way. And she never saw even one law enforcement person. She was going like 160 the whole way. And it was just, we we made great time. It was excellent. No law enforcement personnel anywhere. We pull through this little town and we traded drivers just before and we're pulling through and we're, ch- we're having this great husband-wife conversation talking about really deep things, meaningful conversation like you hope to do with the, you know, in a car with a lot of kids. And we're having this conversation. We pull through this town. We turn at the stoplight. And, I, and I'm doing one over the speed. Not really. But uh, I, I'm speeding. I'm speeding through town. I didn't mean to be. I just sped up too soon. So I'm, as I'm leaving town, I'm, I'm accelerating and I'm going faster than I should be. And I'm admitting it, right? right? All of you, before the Lord and you, I'm admitting that I was doing the wrong thing. We had the talk about, uh, you know, what happens when you do the wrong thing and you get caught. You can't be mad about that. You pay your fine and you go on. So sheriff pulled me over. He gave me a ticket for like $1,000 or something. And uh, it wasn't that much, but it was, it was a lot. And, and I joyfully received it, stuck it in the uh, glove compartment. I'm going to pay it. And, and we drove on down the road. And I, and I did not speed even one more, one mile an hour ever again the whole rest of the trip. I mean, it was just to the T. It, I even went under. But let me ask, and so I tell that story. And, you, and we all generally have a sense of what happens there. You speed, even if you're in another town. That guy has authority, right? He can stop me. He, he turns those lights on. I pull over. He comes up and he's got a gun on his hip. I mean, he, and he is a person of authority. He's been entrusted with authority in this community to make sure that people obey the laws and that, and that, that people can live together in peace and that if you're going to do something that's wrong, he, he can actually take some pretty dramatic steps to ensure that you don't harm others. I mean, that's his job. All right? And he doesn't know who I am, so he, he approaches the car carefully. He, he looks in, he sees that, you know, we're not criminals and we're, I'm not pulling a gun out on him. We're not, we're safe people. And he didn't have really anything to worry about. And he, he writes his ticket and he gives it to me. And, and that's exactly what I would expect that guy to do in his position of power. But what would happen if I wasn't preaching here tonight and I was sitting in a jail in their town for doing 12 miles an hour over with no hope to get out until my family paid some exorbitant price and they're having a hard time even getting home because he took my car and stuck it in an impound lot. And they're racking up bills at the hotel trying to find someone to come get them so they can get home so they can raise some money to go there to get me. Well, I would need someone to come and bring liberty to my life, wouldn't I? If someone took their power and misused it in my life in a way where I had no way to help myself and really no one had a way to help me without some terrible injustice being done. That's what Jesus says is happening in Israel at this time. And that's what Isaiah said was happening then. And Isaiah said, those things are going to cease. The misuse of power. All the way from dictators to dads who misuse their power in their family. Those days are over when Jesus' kingdom comes. He says, I've come to set liberty to those who have been oppressed. 
That's what I've come to do. I've come to fix that. He says, I've come to explain and proclaim and demonstrate that God's favor is here with people. For those who would follow my kingdom way, the year of God's favor is now. It is present. It is here. That's what he comes to say. Isn't that a great thing? I mean, we should, you know, Jason says this a lot from the pulpit. And I, I love that he says, he says, if you're not impressed with Jesus, there's something wrong with your faith. If, if you don't look at Jesus and say, man, he is something. He's a glorious person. He's the son of God. He's the savior of the world. And, and, and he's, he means something to me. When we read this, if, if, if this doesn't stir something in our heart, when we look out just in Woodward and we see poverty and oppression and, and captivity to sin, and we see broken bodies and broken families and broken lives, when, when we read this and say, Jesus is, is here to fix that, if that doesn't stir something in us, I'd say there's something wrong in our faith. When we, when we don't look at the injustices in the world and we look at Jesus and we read this text and we say, Jesus came specifically to fix that. He came specifically to make that different and to make that right. Either in this life or in his kingdom that's coming, that will be made right. He will fix that. But that's not where we started in our talk tonight, was it? That's not where, when we opened up, we, we, we looked at this text, but we didn't start by saying this is what Jesus is going to do. We talked about the fact that there are a lot of churches not doing this. That's just true. There's a lot. I, I talk to churches often. I'll get asked to come in and have a meeting or maybe uh, lead a meeting or, or deal with a conflict. And, and especially in, in some, uh, some of the churches that are really struggling, they'll say, you know, Brother John, what do we need to do to save our church? What do we need to do to get families to come back to our church? What do we need to do to keep the doors open, Brother John? What do we need to do? And typically my response is this. When that becomes your question, it's already too late. Because you forgot what God called you to do. And you had the wrong goal. Instead of being those who would then take up the vocation of Jesus and say, I want to be that guy. Let me, let me tell you where that song came from. So I'm, so I'm, I'm, I'm pastoring a church in Oklahoma City and, and, I'm, and I'm playing my guitar a lot. I'm leading music at the time, some still. And, and, and I'm, I'm reading that text. And I'm reading Isaiah. And I just start singing one day. And, I, and I'm thinking to myself, this needs to be me. I need to be this because this is who Jesus was. This is what he understood his ministry to be. If you walk up to Jesus and say, hey, hey, I'm John. Uh, you know, I, I'm the DOM in Northwestern Association. Hey, what do you do? He would say, I do this. I, I, I find blind people and I give them sight. I take captive people and I set them free. I go to the oppressed and I give them liberty. I go to the poor and I give them good news that it won't always be this way. God has made a difference. He has made a difference in me, and I'm going to bring that to you. Either in this life or in the next, I'm going to make this better. That's what he would say he does. I mean, I was overcome with that, that that's not only for Jesus. That's for us. That's for us. And so I just kind of hummed those words down and, and began to sing that mostly for me. And I sing that song a lot to myself to remind me that this is who I'm supposed to be. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is supposed to be on me. It's supposed to do these things in my life because I've been called to be a part of the body of Christ. And churches are called to be this. A lot of times we think that churches are called to put on great worship services or have great graphics or cool video or good sound or neat bands or cool camps. 
uh, or, or, or be the place that, that has the best youth program or the best children's thing in town. You know what's really true about churches? We're called to be this in whatever community God puts us. That's what we're called to be. And maybe we do that through reaching teenagers. Maybe we do that through good children's programs. Maybe we do that through good services. I'm not saying those things are wrong. But I know for sure, as I look at churches across this association, across our state, across the world, that when this isn't, isn't the focus of the ministry of people, one person to another, one, one Christian to one person who's just lost and struggling in life, when this isn't our goal, we've begun to turn in the wrong direction. And so, so I get these questions. Brother John, how do, we, how do we fix this? How do we make this church better? How do we make it work? How do we solve these conflicts over music or over this or over that or over this building or who gets to use our building or how we spend our money? And there's a part of my heart that just breaks when that happens. I, I tell my wife about it. I said, you know, there's a lot of things about being a DOM I really love, and there's a lot of things I don't like about it. And that's one of the things I don't like about it is that it's heartbreaking to hear God's people called by Jesus to be in his church, his body, in a community, fussing and fighting over a bunch of nonsense that's not the will and purpose of God. It's not. This is what we are to be doing. You know, it's, it's interesting to me, if you go on a little bit further, Jesus goes from synagogue to synagogue and synagogue in chapter 4 of Luke. Luke, as Luke unfolds the gospel story of Jesus and what Jesus was doing in his ministry, he says, and Jesus went from one synagogue to another. He says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent with this purpose. And I think this is what he said. He may not have said exactly those words every time, but I think he went with this ministry everywhere that he went. We know that because if you go on and, and look in, in, in Luke chapter 5, we see him call some disciples. We see him heal a leper, and we see him heal a paralytic. And then we see him go to the, one of the outcasts and call that outcast to faith. And, you, and, and invite him into the good news of God's saving work. We see, that we see Jesus do that. And Luke concludes those stories on purpose so that we would recognize that what he said was his goal in Luke chapter 4 unfolds in the next paragraphs of the story. That's what, that's, what, that's what Luke was doing. He was fitting that together so that we could make the connections. When Jesus says, I came to, to heal, and then he heals. I came to bring freedom. And then he brings freedom. I came to give sight. And then he gives sight. I mean, we see that Jesus does that. Church, the question I think we have to answer is, will we continue to be a people? Will we continue to be a people who focus on people? And, and I think that's a challenging, challenging thing for churches to deal with. It's, it's, it's always an important thing to remember. No church sets out to do it poorly. I don't think anybody does. No church just starts off saying, man, we really want to mess this up. We, we want to fail in what we do in worshiping the Lord and serving him well. I know what we could do. We could build a building. Boy, that would bring glory to God. I can't tell you how many pastors have told me that they'll never lead another building program in their church again ever. Ser I'm serious. I can't tell you how many pastors I know that have, that have gone through that and said it was the worst thing, worst mistake I ever made in ministry. Was to, now, and that doesn't mean it's always bad. Okay, hear that. We, we went through a good building process here at Lincoln Avenue. It was really healthy. It was good. But, but I know pastors who said that, that ruined my ministry at my church, and it, and it basically ruined my church because we forgot what we were doing. We, we, we lost our focus. 
We lost our focus. And it could be that or any other number of things. But, but I want to ask you this question as we kind of wrap up tonight. You know, everybody's got a thing that they do. You know, if you go ask Andrew, Andrew, what do you do? He'd say, well, I'm a youth minister. I'm, I'm an associate pastor at Lincoln Avenue Baptist Church. I'm a, I'm a Christian. I, I follow Christ. And with my time, this is what I do for a living. This is my vocation. And there's a lot of other things you could ask him about. He could tell you about his family, his marriage, his, his hobbies, his, his extended family. But, but if you're talking about just what do you do in, in life, when we ask that question, what do you do? That's what he would say. And, 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 and you might ask someone in, in this room, and, and any number of people could give you any number of things. Well, I do this. Well, I do that. This is what I do. This is how I make a living. This, my husband and I, we own this business. My, my wife does this, and this is what I do. Well, we're semi-retired, and, and, and now we've gone back into to work, and now we do this other thing. We have all these things that we do. But is that really who we are? Now, we've been given a really great identity, haven't we, as Christian people? Deep down, our identity is that we've been hidden in God with Christ. We've been hidden in the cleft of the rock. We've been united with Jesus. We have communion with the Father. We have fellowship with the Father because of the Son. We were the sons who ran off to the far country. And when we came back, our father showed us grace. But instead of the older brother getting mad, we have an older brother in Jesus who made a way. And he, and he invites us back in to the family and, and gladly shares with us everything that is his. All that has been given to him, he gladly shares it with his brothers and sisters. Those that he unites and calls family and friends. That's who we are. And, and when we read Isaiah chapter 61, and then we see Jesus taking Isaiah 61, there's so many things he could have said in the Old Testament when he stood up on that day to read in the synagogue that time. There's so many passages that it would have been appropriate for him to read. He could have talked, he could have talked about where Isaiah foretold his crucifixion. He could have read that. He could have read that, but he didn't. He chose to read this. And he says, this identifies the heart of what it is I'm doing. And Christian, I want to challenge you with this. It identifies the heart of who we're to be. So you may not like that song. That's, that's a song I use to help me remember who I'm supposed to be. I'll hum that in my head. I'll sing that song to myself. And it reminds me, this is who I'm supposed to be. And there's a lot of other things we're supposed to be too. So this isn't exclusive. This isn't the only thing we should understand. But, but find a way to remind yourself that the church is not, the goal isn't to get a lot of people to come to the meetings. The goal isn't to have more meetings. The goal isn't to build more or buy more or have stuff. That's never the goal for the church. What is the goal for the church? To be the presence of God in the world, worshiping the Father with joy, gladly knowing God, gladly honoring Him and worshiping Him, and gladly fellowshipping one with another, and gladly embodying those realities in our community for the sake of the poor, for the sake of the oppressed, for the sake of those who are in need, for the sake of those whose lives are broken. We are those people. What happens when we don't do that? It doesn't get done. That's just true, isn't it? What happens when I don't do that? It doesn't get done. What happens when you don't? It doesn't get done. Let, let me give you an encouraging word, though. Who is intent upon that happening? Who's determined that that is going to occur in the world? If you go to the book of Hebrews uh, chapter 12, I was looking at this earlier this afternoon. Hebrews chapter 12, I was thinking about this text. 
and, and it's one I, I enjoy a lot. It says this. He says, we should, um, chapter 12, verse 20 says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It says, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for God is a consuming fire. God is determined to accomplish everything that's in his heart to accomplish. And he's going to bring a kingdom that won't be shaken. And that's what Jesus was saying. He says, I'm bringing this. I'm bringing the kingdom of God. I'm proclaiming its good news to you. And all you have to do to participate in it is trust me, follow me, believe in me. And you're in. This this is a wide open invitation. As a friend of mine used to say, this is one of those deals where we want the people to get the answers right. It's okay to cheat here. You know, this is one of those where it's okay to give your neighbor the answer. You remember that in school? No one no one look off each other's papers. You know, cover them up. You get the answers. Don't let your neighbor see the answers. No, in this one, we want everybody to see the answer. It's like, hey, look, this is the right answer for me and you. Write it down. It's good for you. Because this kingdom can't be shaken. And so when we look around and we say, man, there's so much need. There's so much to do. There is a temptation sometimes to draw back into ourselves, isn't there? And to enjoy what we have. That's true. I faced it. I think you do too. There are days where I just think, man, I'm glad to be a part of a good church. Boy, I am. I'm glad to be a part of a church that's growing. Boy, I'm glad to have a good pastor and good fellow pastors to fellowship with. I'm glad to have good, good fellowship among my friends in the church. Man, I'm just glad. That's good. That's, that's, that's good, boy. I'm glad to be a part of that. And Sometimes it can be a temptation to really focus in on that and think a lot about that. As opposed to saying, okay, now who are we supposed to be again? And what are we supposed to be doing again? Let's go do that. And let's enjoy the fellowship while we're doing it. And let's make sure we continue to gather for worship while we're doing it. And let's buy the tools we need to do whatever it is that God's calling us to do in Woodward to do it. Let's make sure we have those things. But let's make sure we don't forget who we are. Because the truth is today, Jesus is bringing a kingdom that can't be shaken. Isn't that right? The truth isn't that there are a lot of churches in decline. That's not the primary truth. Because that's been up and down all throughout the history of the church. Church has had its up and it's had its down. But Jesus is bringing his kingdom and it can't be shaken. It is true. It is real. And we have the great opportunity to participate in it. So let Luke 4 be an encouragement to you. Let Isaiah 61 be an encouragement to you. And let this be your prayer. Lord, how can this be who I am? How can you send me out in your name? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the blessing of uh, being with your people and for uh, your word. I pray that you would stir in us and work in us great things. Father, as a church body, we would not be those who are proud or, or that we look to ourselves, but instead we are humbled by your grace and your goodness. And Lord, that we always are mindful that you have called us to do your work in the world. That we, we're called to care for the poor. We're called to proclaim liberty, freedom, and truth, and healing. And the power of your Holy Spirit and the favor of the Lord to those who have ears to hear and eyes to see and who by faith can come to Christ and just trust you. Father, let this be true of us and let this be who we are. Help us to proclaim the year of God's favor. And we say this in Christ's name for his glory and all God's people said amen.